0: We are trying to do a podcast on spiritual gifts and to have a discussion, a civil discussion about these because these are important topics to think about as we search for truth, as we think about what the Bible has to say and how that applies to our lives. These conversations help us to think about the issues, to use the reason God has given us to think not only about – these issues about who he is and how he works in our lives. And so we have two guests with us for that today. We have Troy and um, so much frustration. Kofi, Kofi that I can't, I can't remember. And I apologize to that for that. No worries. So um, to start back from the top, um, Troy, can you just shortly introduce yourself for our listeners? It's
1: Sure, yeah, so I'm Troy, uh, and I'm married to my beautiful wife, Alicia, of over 10 years, and we have four young children, and uh, I'm a member at Little Flock Baptist Church in Shepherdsville, Kentucky, that's where I live, and I also lead a uh, local evangelism ministry, a uh, street evangelism ministry um, that preaches the gospel on the streets um, here in, in town, in different places, University of Louisville, other places. Um, and I'm a route driver for my uh, work. So I think that would sum it up.
0: And um, Kofi?
2: Sure, so Kofi Edibohan, uh coming to you from Medford, Oregon. Uh, church planter here in Oregon with Redeemer Bible Fellowship. Uh, married to Laura, father of Gareth, who is just under two years old. Uh, currently pursuing currently pursuing my MDiv at, uh, the local college and seminary and, uh, also host a podcast on and off more often on right now, but host a podcast called deep dive discipleship, which really covers issues of discipleship and disciple making in the local church.
0: Great. So, so for the kind of to lay out how this will work, we'll still try to go about an hour or so. Um, to keep the length normal even though we've had some difficulties but to kind of start off um, we will give um, Troy you can get um, go first again and have about 10 minutes or so to kind of discuss um, your position kind of some opening statements on why you think um, sign gifts are still seen today or still being used today. And then when he's done, um, Kofi, you can get 10 minutes approximately also to um, state your reasons why you don't think they're signed gifts today.
1: Troy? Sure. Yeah. And you can let me know at like seven minutes in because uh, I'll try to keep it uh, pretty short. Um, so the first thing I want to say, uh, thanks for having me on the show. And I agree, this is an important issue. And uh, I don't believe it's a first-tier issue. I don't believe that if I'm wrong, that uh, I don't have the grace of God um, in salvation. And I don't believe that if Kofi's position is wrong, that he doesn't have the grace of God in salvation. I believe it's second tier, um, a second-tier issue. Um, however, I do believe that the more true things we believe, the more edifying that our Christian experience is and the more we edify the local church and glorify God which is what the whole thing's about. Um, I first want to say that uh, Kofi and I are both uh, both charismatics uh, in that we are both partakers of God's grace, uh, his, his gift. Um, and we're also both cessationists because we both believe there is a time where all spiritual gifts will cease. Um, the distinction is, I believe, on the cessationist view that there is um, – an arbitrary line drawn through uh, certain spiritual gifts that are listed together in scripture. Um, I I say arbitrary because uh, I believe there's no basis to make that distinction. Um, I believe that cessationist argumentation um, is constructed by arguments that are really outside of scripture and then imposed into scripture. Um, So with that being said, um, I believe that scripture, uh, it does indicate to us in several places um, when all spiritual gifts will cease. Um, I believe that if we start back in the Torah, we see Moses's desire that uh, all of God's people would prophesy in Numbers chapter 11 in verse 29. So my our argument really starts in the Torah, and then we see a prophecy as we moved. Uh, Further in redemptive history, in the prophet Joel, in the second chapter, where Joel sort of satisfies Moses' desire, and he says that, look, in the latter days, sons and daughters are going to prophesy, God's people are going to see vision, dream dreams, so on and so forth. We continue to move forward in redemptive history. We get to the second chapter of Acts, where the Spirit's poured out um and uh many 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 people uh are experiencing the phenomena that was prophesied by Joel um and Peter recognizes this and and he says that look this is um the fulfillment of what was prophesied by the prophet uh Joel and uh this phenomena was poured out on people that were uh extended beyond the apostles um And so whenever we get to the New Testament writings, um, we we must build our theology uh, from Scripture up, okay? Um, So in the New Testament writings, um, I don't believe that the Scriptures are silent concerning uh, telling us the point in time in which all of the spiritual gifts will cease. But I uh, believe that it actually indicates to us um, in several verses uh, some of them are more clear than others, but I believe all of them uh, evidence um, my position. I believe that uh, a scripture, um, I'm going to kind of merge Joel two and Acts two together because really it's the same text. Um, but uh, Joel and Peter recognizes that um, that these you know gifts, the spirit of prophecy, um, tongues, the, the manifestation of the spirit, uh, is to be a characteristic, um, not just of the first century, um, around the time when the gospel was, you know, gospel revelation was being laid down, um, in terms of the new covenant writing, but it was actually to be the characteristic of what Peter calls and Joel calls the last days. Uh, I know scholars like, uh, GK Beale and others, um, uh, point out to us that the last days, is Luke's way of explaining and referring to the time period uh, from the first advent of Christ until the second advent of Christ. So I believe that that text, kind of Joel 2 and Acts 2 merged together, um, is one text that tells us uh, the time in which um, uh, miraculous phenomenon, uh, spiritual gifts, if you will, uh, will continue. And I believe it's, it's the entire span of the last days. Uh, which we have not got to the end of yet. The second text would be in uh, 1 Corinthians, verse uh, or chapter one, verse seven, where Paul uses the term charismatic. He says, "You are not lacking." tells all the Corinthians, you know, not all of them are apostles; clearly, just ordinary Christians. You are not lacking in any charismata, any gift, any spiritual gift, as you wait for the revealing of the Lord of, of our Lord Jesus from. Heaven. So Paul there indicates um, that no spiritual gift is going to be lacking uh, to apostles, -apostles, non-apostles, Christians in general, the body of Christ in general, um, until, as Paul indicates, the coming of the Lord uh, Jesus from heaven. Another text would be Ephesians chapter 4, around verse 11, where um, Paul tells us that as Christ ascended, he then distributed gifts. And he laid out the what some people call fivefold, but I agree with others that would would more call it a fourfold type of office or gifts, apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Um, he says that these are given uh, until we reach uh, full maturity, uh, the st- statue of full manhood. Um, and I do not believe that this could possibly uh, be seen as um, as uh a, a time period that has already happened um we see as the canon came to a close i mean we see in the middle ages uh certain even key doctrines of the church became uh very very latent throughout the middle ages so we uh i, I don't believe there's any point in time in the past where we can look and we can identify uh the point ding 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 when the church reached uh full, full the full stature of manhood. Um, So I believe it's another text that spiritual gifts will last until the eschaton, until the second advent of Christ. Um, And uh, and another text would be 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, verses 8 through 12, where Paul uh, specifically tells us when um, gifts like tongues, knowledge, uh, prophecies would cease. And he doesn't say at the completion of a collection of books. Um, he used the term prosopon, pros prosopon, which in the Septuagint, Genesis chapter 30, verse 32, um, is uh, a phrase, exact phrase used when Jacob wrestled, not with a collection of books, but when he wrestled with God, when he saw God face to face. Um, it's used in other place, places throughout the Old Testament, um, again, with theophanies, with encounters face to face with God not with the arrival of a collection of books. So I believe that based on that, and when Paul uses the term the teleon, the perfect um, coming, it's in the neuter case. And so I believe that that's describing the state of affairs, the consummation that uh, will come when Jesus comes back, when Paul says that he will see prosopon, pros, prosopon. Um, So I do not believe that any argument can substantiate that that has already happened yet. And lastly, uh, Paul tells us the purpose of spiritual gifts um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then also in 14 uh, chapter 14, and he doesn't say the purpose of the gifts is merely to authenticate the gospel message, um, although that is a purpose. Um, but Paul says that uh, the more ongoing purpose is for the common good. Chapter 12 verse 7 is for the building up, for the consolation, for the edification. Of the church. So again, all spiritual gifts continue um, as long as the church is in this state prior to the teleon, prior to when it no longer needs to be built up and edified. Therefore, all spiritual gifts continue with us until this day. And let me say this last thing. Um, My position as a continuation is I in no way affirm all of the aberrant uh, phenomenon that we see today. I would agree most of it is aberrant, uh, aberrant. most of it is invalid, Um, it's people's flesh, or in some cases it's demonic, so um, I'm not affirming that every tongue talker, every prophet is valid, but what I am saying is that God is sovereign, the Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he distributes gifts as he wills. So theologically, I believe by Scripture alone, by being sola scriptura, we have to conclude that spiritual gifts will not cease being distributed until the eschaton, though uh, there may be periods of time in church history where the evidence is very latent. But however, uh, we, we we are not allowed by scripture to take a position that would say the cessation of any gift has already happened in the past and therefore uh, be uh, 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 absolved and the liability for us to obey the command according to chapter 12 of 1st Corinthians and chapter 14 to earnestly desire spiritual gifts to earnestly desire to prophesy and to not forbid speaking in tongues. That's my position.
0: Okay. So I was going to try to jump in and tell you seven, but you hit 10. So we'll go there. Um, uh, Cough. Going to mess up. It's late here in the East Coast.
1: Uh, I think it says Mike's muted. Uh, yeah, there we go. There. Yeah. There. For a
0: okay, sorry. Uh, mm-hmm. Kofi, do you hear yes. her now?
2: All right. Uh, I put some slides together. I'll see if I can share my screen here. Uh, let's see. Share screen. Hmm. Okay, that's not working. I think I can do it on my end. Let's try that. Okay, oh, did the wrong way around. That doesn't help. Uh, no, I don't really need to show those. I can just read them as we here, go. I can. So here, I, can,
0: I can change the view. Oh, okay.
2: Uh, so uh, let me try that again.
0: Transition.
2: So I'm to put that. Okay. Seems to be mirrored for some reason.
0: It's not on It's not on the
2: um Oh, on the main thing? On the main okay. screen. So. Okay, perfect. Um then I can read on here, so it doesn't matter too much. All right. So let me set myself a little timer as well, because I can be somewhat long winded sometimes. So let's see. All right. So very quickly, I want to kind of put forward what I mean when I use the term cessationism. Uh, this uh, set of points I'm going to make aren't original to me. They're actually from a good friend of mine, Lyndon um, um, I really like the way he put this. And so I've kind of kept it because I think it's useful. Um, he calls it his nutshell case for cessationism. So I do want to credit Lyndon for this. First of all, I think it's probably helpful to define what we mean when we say cessationism so cessationism is the view that the gifts of tongues their interpretation along with healings and prophecy were for the foundation of the church and are not normative for today now i think that's important to start there with defining that because what we aren't saying is that there are no spiritual gifts operative today in fact i would actually take the view that the lists we see in scripture are not an exhaustive list of all the gifts that are available to god's people today and so i don't treat them as an exhaustive list so we're not saying that all spiritual gifts have ceased and when as we'll get into this in just a moment i would make a distinction between we talk about healing the gift of healing and the ability of god in his sovereign prerogative to heal i would also make a distinction between the gift of prophecy and the prophetic office that the church as a body occupies i would say that the latter to continue the former two I would say were foundational and they're not normative for today so that's what I mean when I talk about cessationism now first of all I would want to take a step back and deal with the nature of biblical signs and wonders I think when you look at the bible the pattern of frequency with signs and wonders in general there are some outlying occasions but by and large the pattern seems to be that of scarcity not that these are the norm so Actually, if you look at the time frame of Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles, it seems to be restrained to those three periods. In fact, uh, Norman Geisler in his excellent work, Signs and Wonders, makes a note that in all the biblical history, only about 200 years are marked by frequent signs and wonders. Secondly, when we talk about signs and wonders, the biblical purpose, as far as we can see, for signs and wonders and the miraculous was is clear and consistent throughout scripture so exodus 3 and 4 god gives these confirmatory signs to moses first Kings chapter 17 same thing with elijah second Corinthians chapter 12 verse 12 and hebrews 2 3 and 4 paul well the 2 Corinthians 12, twelve, paul explicitly says that the signs of an apostle were worked with much patience and he explicitly says signs wonders and mighty deeds that same language is picked up verbatim in hebrews chapter 2 saying that those who spoke the gospel to the uh hebrews who received the letter had their word confirmed through signs wonders and mighty deeds so you see the same phenomena there when we talk about the gift of prophecy one of the i think the most important points that as a Sessionist, i would affirm is that the biblical definition of a prophet a person who speaks on god's behalf Um, speaks on behalf of God as God to people doesn't change when we get to the New Testament in the New Testament in the Old Testament excuse me prophecy was infallible it carried the very authority of God and that's why if somebody spoke in the name of God and the thing didn't come true you were to reject that person Deuteronomy 18 or if they spoke in the name of other gods and the thing came true because they have turned away from the one true God you didn't listen to them either way Fourthly, the biblical example when we look at healing is that healings were always public and unchallengeable. They were instantaneous. They were complete. They did not look like what we see today. Now, that does not mean, as we'll see in a moment, that God doesn't heal today. Fifthly, I would say that the biblical definition of tongues, which were previously unknown earthly dialects via the miraculous work of the spirit, the ability to speak in those languages, don't that... ability you don't see two separate forms of that one in the book of acts one in first corinthians chapters 12 13 and 14 so as i noted prophecy appears in both the old testament and the new testament but the definition authoritatively and definitively speaking god's direct word to god's people doesn't change again i don't know where my brother was going but i have heard enough folks make the claim that there is a different gift in the new testament than there is today well I would argue that any claim of a New Testament gift that differs from the Old Testament needs to be proven from clear scripture. Finally, I would say that miraculous healings continue until the second coming, but the apostolic sign gift of healing does not. The healings that we see today, which I absolutely affirm happen, I have been a personal beneficiary of that. The healings that we see happen today are done at God's discretion in response to prayer, as we see in James chapter five. But that's very different to what we see in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, where they are able to heal at will. And so when we put all of those together in the New Testament, I would argue the New Testament itself argues that these gifts were foundational. They served a very particular purpose. And that now that the foundation of the church has been laid, it is not that these gifts cannot happen today. But as I noted in my definition, they're not normative for today. This is not the norm for God's people. And so that would be, in a nutshell, my case for cessationism. And my hope is that as we engage in this discussion tonight, we can go into a little bit more detail, look at some of the texts my brother raised. I can bring up some texts as well, and we can have a good discussion.
0: Yes. So to kind of start off, we'll go with kind of um, in the Old Testament and looking at um, kind of starting in the Old Testament. There is a question from Sundancer Music on uh, YouTube. So the question is for um, Troy, and then maybe just this can be kind of a starting point of discussion between the two. And his question is, um, is your position that prophecy continues in the form of the old Testament and is infallible, or do you kind of follow the path of theologians like Grudem? I think, um, Kofi was, uh, mentioned a little bit about it, even just, um, as he was closing to the end. So kind of starting with that question and then maybe moving in some of the discussion around old Testament, um, figures like Moses, like Elijah, um, and kind of start our conversations kind of right there?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, So I would say that there is a distinction um, between canonical prophecy versus non-canonical prophecy. In other words, um, all scripture is prophecy, but not all prophecy is scripture. Um, There are... Uh, differences in the words of Moses, the words of Isaiah, the words of Jeremiah that are written down, um, foundational, central truth, concerning doctrine, theology, moral standards, so on and so forth, versus uh, people like uh, Eldad and Medad in in Numbers 11 who prophesied, but their words were never written down. We have no idea what they said. Um, Or like Saul laying naked all night in 1 samuel chapter 19 verse 24 uh laying naked all night uh prophesying before samuel um so so the distinction is canonical prophecy versus non-canonical prophecy um and so in the new covenant what we see is sort of a a, a democratization of the gift of prophecy to where now the completion of the canon is coming so god's Canonical word is coming to a close. God is uh, in redemptive history, completing the body of revelation that we need for all of our doctrine and, and moral living. Um, yet this uh, democratized gift of prophecy is being distributed on even women uh, in, in a normative sense. Again, Acts two of the last days, it's characterized normative. Um, sons and daughters will prophesy male servants, female servants. So I believe that um, as the full body of God's canonical revelation, uh, 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 essential uh, for all time, uh, had been uh, completed, that now uh, prophecy takes a subordinate role um, throughout the New Testament age until Jesus returns. And it's subordinate in both its uh, delivery, meaning that uh, god for reason sufficient for, for him uh he chooses to not always get it through uh infallibly um it must be weighed it must dia crino meaning not just judged black and white but actually dia like sifted through it um and that uh, and that also it's subordinate now um in its content meaning the content uh, w- will never be new anthropological uh, revelation the content of prophecy will never be a new christological revelation new sociological doctrines new standards for moral living but rather its uh, content pertains to exposing the secret hearts of men uh, specific leading and in, 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 in missional efforts or encouragement for ministry and in some very rare cases uh, predictive prophecies of the future to help the church
2: Okay, um I guess two or three questions kind of come to mind as I heard you speak. Um, so I would say first of all, where do we see a biblical um a, well, a biblical example of a difference either in quality or method of delivery between what you described as canonical prophecy and non canonical prophecy? I guess I'd want to start with that question before I ask any other ones.
1: Sure. Yeah, so so to answer the first one, the difference in mode of delivery meaning that a, a prophecy got through wrong by multiple people uh, would be the disciples in time in Acts chapter 21, verse four, and possibly even Luke himself.
2: Okay. Um, can you kind of, can you just mention the passage? So in Acts 21, for the benefit of those listening, what's happening there in Acts chapter 21?
1: Yeah. So, so in Acts chapter, I believe you start in chapter 19, uh, the spirit is revealing To Paul, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. Um, We see that, let's see, chapter 19, uh, believe in verse 21, you start seeing now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia, so on and so forth, go to Jerusalem. Um, We see this confirmed. uh, Paul picks up chapter 20, verse 22. Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained. By the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me. So this is a prophecy testifies to me that in every city, imprisonments and afflictions await me. So so, so the, the prophecy by the spirit in these texts to Paul was go to Jerusalem. You're going to suffer. Um, and then when we get to as he's traveling to Jerusalem, we get into Acts chapter 21 and he comes to uh uh, the, the town I believe it's of of Tyre and it says verse 4 and having sought out the disciples so we're talking about multiple people disciples um, we stayed there for seven days and through the spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem okay and then you can even read down in verse I believe it's down in verse 11 or 12 where, where you even see like Luke is persuading him not to go so so multiple disciples, uh, are are through the spirit saying something that contradicts what the spirit just told Paul.
2: Okay, um, I guess I'm I have to wonder, and I, um, I kind of figured that we would come here to Acts twenty one because Agabus is brought up multiple times in various uh, discussions of the issue of the gift of prophecy in the New Testament. Um, I just have to say that I question the assumption that there was a wrong prophecy that was made here and i'm not the only person who questions this assumption for the benefit of those who are at home there's a great article by nathan busing it's from master seminary called throwing prophecy under the agabus where he kind of walks through um acts chapter 21 quite carefully to say that um well and also the context of acts 21 to show that actually agabus did not get that prophecy wrong uh, i would also question using a narrative to try and prove a point of doctrine when i think when we look at how the bible talks about the nature of the gift of prophecy again as i you know noted in my opening statement you do not see a change a clear change from old testament to new testament between as you described it non-canonical and canonical prophecy i think the only difference is one is written down and preserved for the people of god and one is not I would say that's the only difference. I would argue that trying to say that, okay, well, the Spirit said one thing, the believers desired something else in Acts chapter 20, and then Acts chapter 21, Agabus says something that on the surface seems to be contradictory, but actually isn't. I'm not sure that I would agree that what you have there then are differing forms of the gift of prophecy for what we see in the Old Testament. Because I don't see any clear textual warrant that says that that gift of prophecy changed between the old covenant and the new covenant.
1: Okay, well, so so number one, just to respond, I actually didn't use the Agabus example. So so what you just argued to is something that I wasn't arguing for. Okay. Um, I'm I'm using the example uh, of of the multiple disciples in Tyre, and and even Luke himself. Um, I think it's verse twelve. So so Luke is I think we would agree Luke is writing Luke in Acts. So, so Luke here, one of the we verses, uh, even down in verse 12, when we heard this, we, uh, we and the people were urging him not to go to Jerusalem. So in other words, like it, it, it's not just one disciple, one obscure text. It's multiple disciples entire, including Luke himself, that through the spirit, the same prophetic language that was used uh, in, in the previous chapters, to, uh, that, that was constraining Paul to go to Jerusalem, that was testifying to Paul, the same language, multiple disciples, including Luke, arguably, um, are, are actually uh, what, you know, like, so let me explain this. On, on my position, I can account for this text, because I see that on the uh, belief that as God's canonical revelation is coming to completion, the gift of prophecy takes a subordinate role and so that now the revelation is always infallible. I believe the spirit uh, told the disciples at Tyre the same thing that it told Paul. But the difference is now um, is that they misinterpreted it and then misapplied it. So the disciples may have seen Paul suffering, which was accurate, even Luke. But they misinterpreted that and they misapplied it, say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But either either way you, you know have it. The, the text says, and I believe it's arbitrary to, you know, to exclude me from using narrative text. I mean, you asked, I mean, your original question was just what examples do we have? And then I, and then I give one and then now it's, you know, we're, we're making all these distinctions of what I can and can't use. So I'm just saying that, that this is a text uh, in, in scripture um, that has an example that the spirit tells Paul one thing. And that multiple believers, possibly including Luke, say the exact opposite. Uh, so this okay, um, is that Well, I, I guess issue.
2: I guess the issue is, first of all, I, the reason I bring up Agabus is it's right in that same pericope begins in verse 10. After we had been there for several days, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Mm-hmm. After we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So, again, this is in the same set of events, but also it doesn't say here, again, unless I'm misreading, I'm looking at the wrong text here. Twenty one twelve doesn't say that they were prophesying to him that he shouldn't. He says that they pleaded with him not to go, that which is of course a natural human reaction when you hear that someone you love is walking into a dangerous situation. That doesn't necessarily contradict the prophecy that Agabus gave or the warning that Paul would go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer as a result of his going.
1: Okay, yeah, but but I'm I, I'm not uh, the the text I'm talking about is verse four where where they prophetically. Contradict what the Spirit had told Paul.
2: Okay, so verse four: What we sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Right. Again, the assumption—I don't know how the assumption becomes there—that a gift, of, that a word of prophecy is being given there. It could be, and I would take this view, that when it mentions them speaking through the Spirit, it's in line with the fact that they have the Spirit of God and they are pleading with Paul in the Spirit, Paul on the basis of the holy spirit that we share don't do this like don't go if you say that the prophecy contradicts now you've got god saying contradictory things now i understand that okay you say based on you know first corinthians where it talks about judging and we have to sift through but again it just seems like that is importing things into this passage that the text itself doesn't say we're coming up with an assumption which is well two different things are happening in here therefore there must be a contradiction and I'm saying, no, I don't think there's a contradiction here at all.
1: Okay, so so w- what I'm not saying is, is that the Spirit is contradicting himself. I'm saying that this text uh, seems to fit very well with the continuationist view of the gift of prophecy in the New Covenant, that the Holy Spirit spoke. jerusalem he was to suffer i believe that at the point of revelation to the disciples, multiple disciples at tyre the revelation was infallible i don't believe the holy spirit contradicted himself but i'm saying that the text doesn't say you know just that they were spirit-filled people that were were telling paul to not go to jerusalem in, like just merely in their own words based on their own uh, uh volitions but the text says uh, prophetic language that through the spirit They were telling Paul to not go to Jerusalem. So I believe that the revelation the Spirit gave to Paul and the disciples at Tyre was non-contradictory. But the disciples at Tyre then fallibly interpreted it and then fallibly applied it.
2: And again, I would ask, where do we see this clearly in the past? It seems to be an importation into the text rather than allowing the text to speak on its own merit. Um, I would also note that that phrase, through the Spirit, is highly inconclusive. In fact, Gordon Fee in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, note not 1 Corinthians, excuse me, not Gordon Fee, um, is is in the same series, the New International Commentary on the New Testament. In its commentary on Acts, it notes that this phrase is somewhat inconclusive to define as to what it means through the Spirit, because it's not used in other places where the gift of prophecy is being mentioned. And so, again, I I would want to say, I would pause on using a passage like this to make that point when we're dealing again, not with a clear passage, Basic hermeneutics: we use clear text to interpret unclear ones. And I don't necessarily think that this is the clearest of texts.
0: I just want to. Okay. Well, um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Um, that is FF Bruce who wrote that commentary. Thank you. FF, FF Bruce. Thank, to, you. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, go in there. Okay, Troy, go ahead.
1: Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so so in other words, what I was so what I was going to say, I, I don't believe that it's importing any anything into the text. Um, I, I see how on a cessationist view that it would be very tempting to render this phrase in, uh, ambiguous, but I, I don't believe it's ambiguous. I mean, for example, even if if you were to sort of uh you know like water it down in a sense and say, well, well, they were just you know urging Paul or telling Paul uh, in a sense of being spirit prompted to not go to Jerusalem like even at that, you still uh, have a problem because you still have the the spirit constraining, testifying to Paul to go to Jerusalem in the previous chapter. And then the spirit, I mean, if you're gonna say that it's just spirit filled people, they're just being prompted by the spirit. It's not really prophetic language. You still have a problem because you still have to uh, reconcile why the spirit is prompting uh, multiple disciples to tell and urge Paul to do something contrary to what the Spirit just told Paul to do in the previous chapter.
2: Well, again, I would argue that this phrase, through the Spirit in itself, is somewhat inconclusive. I have my own view on it, but it's very hard to actually define what this term means. I would also note that Paul, as somebody who, as you read the book of Acts, is incredibly sensitive to the Spirit's leading. If the Spirit were indeed saying not to go, Paul would not ignore this. And again, you still not, in my opinion, answer the question, if the Spirit is saying to one group, paul don't go and yet the spirit says through agabus listen you're going to go to jerusalem and when you go to jerusalem this is what's going to happen to you and in fact paul ignores if we're saying that's what's happening in acts 21 if we're saying that paul ignores one word of prophecy and picks another again there's nothing in the text i would argue that makes this as clear-cut as we're trying to make it here
1: okay well what i'm saying is is not that agabus contradicted uh in in terms of his prophecy of what the spirit told paul again i'm i'm not saying that at all i'm saying that paul uh just like this scenario in the old testament it's like kind of that weird passage i think it's in one of the book of the kings but you have a prophecy given to to a person first and then you have like a prop an older prophet he goes and sees him then he says something contradictory and the guy obeys him switches and then he goes and gets eaten by a lion or whatever so paul uh, here he knew what the Spirit told him, and I agree with you. He was very sensitive to the Spirit, and I'm not saying Agabus contradicted prophetically what the Spirit told Paul. I'm saying that I, I believe Paul had had my view, and he understood that um, that the uh, prophecy that the revelation given to the disciples at Tyre was the same as was given to him at the point of the revelation. But Paul understood that these people were misinterpreting. The revelation and then misapplying it and thus told him and gave him a command to not do something Paul knew that they had misinterpreted it. He didn't believe the spirit contradicted himself, but he believed that the disciples of Tyre uh, misinterpreted and misapplied the revelation and therefore he disobeyed not the Holy Spirit, but he disobeyed the disciples uh, of Tyre's uh, uh, fallible interpretation and fallible application.
2: Okay, again, well, I guess we would have to move on because I, again, I just struggle with this idea that the Spirit of God, who is himself God, can give revelation. The revelation is, we'll say, fine, we won't say the Spirit contradicted, but clearly these two groups of people are contradicting themselves. I don't read anywhere in scripture where God gives contradictory words. You use the example of the prophecy in 1 Kings. First of all, um, the the older prophet in 1 Kings was lying. That's the clear implication of that text right right not that god spoke to him he's actually right. lying the man disobeyed what god clearly told him to do and he suffered the consequences of it that's very different to saying that okay this older prophet received something and this um the younger man that he basically lied to received something else i wouldn't say that necessarily but again i i just i struggle because i do not see a clear textual warrant. it seems like you have to kind of say well almost like you're presupposing the point that you know prophecy in the new testament is different from prophecy in the old. Um, prophecy as it was prior. And so since it's different, that's what's happening here. I don't see this coming out of the text. It seems like it's being read into it.
1: Okay. Well, well what I would say is that is that on the continuationist uh, view, it can account for for these texts without like Thomas Schreiner and others have to explain it away by, it's kind of a complicated thing. But, but so on my presuppositions, I can account for it perfectly but i would just argue that on the cessationist um uh view that 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 doesn't allow for what i'm saying that you're ultimately left with having to add words to the text in acts 21 4 where it says through the spirit they told paul to do y whenever previously the spirit was telling paul to do x and you have to say well they're not really prophesying they're not really you know, speaking by the spirit, they're not really being spirit prompted. And so you're kind of left with, with, with a, a problem in the text where my view, it leaves me with no problem with the text. So that's the last, I mean, that's, if you wanted to move on, that would be my, my thoughts on that.
2: Okay. Sure. So let's start with the gift of tongues and with the book of Acts. I think that's a very easy one. In Acts chapter 2, we have the first occurrence of the gift of tongues. It's mentioned by Jesus a number of times prior to Acts chapter 2, but in Acts chapter 2, it finally happened. And in Acts chapter 2, this is what Luke, as the chronicler of the book of Acts, tells us. So in Acts chapter 2, make sure I get the text right. There we are. Beginning in verse 5. Actually, no, let's begin in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a sound came together and was confused, because they heard they, because each one heard them speaking in his own language, they were astounded and amazed, saying, "Look, aren't <clears throat> excuse me, aren't all these who speak who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each one of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jew and con, con Jews and converts." Cretans and arabs we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of god in our own tongues they were all astounded and perplexed saying to one another what does this mean but some sneered and said they are drunk on new wine as far as we can see in scripture this is the only time the gift of tongues is described for us anywhere in scripture first corinthians will bring up the gift of tongues but paul doesn't even deign to define it Why? Because I think it was clearly understood by any person who had heard Paul, who had heard the apostles at any given point. It was actual languages that could be interpreted, that could be understood by the hearer. When we come to the gift of prophecy, I simply just point to what God himself describes in the Old Testament as the gift of prophecy. I think a good example comes to us in the book of Exodus, where God is commissioning Moses to go back to... Egypt and as you know the narrative They're kind of going back and forth And here's what God says In Acts chapter 4 You know Acts excuse me In Exodus chapter 4 And verse 14 he says Then Yahweh's anger burned against Moses and said Isn't Aaron the Levite your brother I know he can speak well And also he's on your way now to meet you He will rejoice when he sees you You will speak with him and tell him what to say I will help both you and him to speak And teach you both what to do He will speak for you He will speak to the people for you He will serve as a mouth for you Literally, you will put your words in his mouth And he, you will serve as God to him So God says, listen, just like you hear from me and you speak Aaron's going to hear from you and he's going to speak. God seems to define the gift of prophecy as somebody speaking his word. He doesn't mention anything about misinterpretation. Doesn't mention anything about there's a fallible component to this. It's very clearly God speaks. Elsewhere, God says to Moses, listen, I'm going to make you like God to Pharaoh and Aaron will be your prophet. Well, we know what uh, Aaron's role was. and And yet God says, listen, you're going to be like God Moses and you're going to Aaron's going to be like Pharaoh, uh, the prophet, excuse me. Aaron will speak for you, you'll put your words in his mouth and he will speak. Same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where God clearly says that the prophet who would come, who ultimately is our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I will put my words in his mouth. So, again, it's not a well, the human recalling and bringing up to mind what God. Um, reveals as much as it's no it's clearly speaking from god this is picked up in the new testament second peter chapter one peter says that no prophecy came in time past through the will of man but men spoke from god as they were led by the holy spirit god put his words through his spirit in the mouths of the prophets and they spoke i do not see anywhere in the new testament where we're told that Yes, that's what happened previously, but now something has happened, and in the delivery phase, something can you know it can be misinterpreted, misunderstood, misapplied. I don't see that when I read the New Testament. And so, those would be where I get the definitions for tongues and for prophecy. As for healing, again, I would point to the healings of Jesus himself. When Jesus healed, they were instantaneous, they were at will. Yes, often he prays for the benefits of those who hear him, but sometimes he doesn't have to. Why? Because he's able to do this at will. And this is what we also see in the ministry of the apostles. But when we get to James chapter 5, James chapter 5 says if anybody is sick, and although there's some debate as to what the sickness there is, but James' James's clear understanding is if somebody is sick, he is to ask for the elders of the church to come, to pray, to anoint him with oil. The implication there seems to be that, they may be healed, they may not be. Even in the New Testament itself, you see a grade, a gradual passing away of the gift of healing. So, for example, Timothy is sick. Paul doesn't say, okay, well, I will pray for you to be healed. He says, no, take some wine for your stomach's sake because of your stomach's infirmities. Paul has to say that Trophimus, who was one of his dear associates, he had to leave behind because he was sick. If this were, If even in the New Testament we see the same practice of the gift of healing, the same way that Jesus and the apostles do at the earlier phases of the church's life, why do we not see the same in the New Testament? So that's why I get my definitions from simply clearly asking, okay, what does the text define as prophecy, define as tongues, define as healing, and then saying, okay, how do I make sense of, okay, here is one gift of healing as we see in the gospels. And yet we see people being prayed for healing in the book of James. And there's no implication that there's a guarantee that this will happen. So that's where I would say that I get those definitions. And yes, I kind of kept it short and because 10 minutes isn't a lot of time. But I think there is biblical basis for each of the points that I
0: made. Okay. Um, we are getting about 10 minutes from the one hour mark, at least from the start of streaming. Um, is okay to go over. Are you guys willing to go a little bit longer? I know it's about, it's 1030 here in the Eastern time zone. So I just want to make sure just to give Troy you an opportunity kind of, offer some pushback since kind of the first half you got a lot of pushback
1: oh sure sure um yeah yeah i'm fine going going a little over
0: so um troy um i guess kind of to respond or to question um kofi on kind of i guess his definitions and kind of making those types of distinctions
1: right right sure so um I'll try to respond to the few points he made. I I might miss something, but, but but anyway, with, with defining the gift of tongues, I mean, just like we, we, we don't necessarily derive and build our entire doctrine of justification by faith from, you know, in uh, a, a text, say, say in the gospels, although I believe what the gospels teach about sola fide is consistent with what Paul teaches, but, but the best place to build, doctrines and definitions on what these uh things are it is to go to where they're most explicitly taught and dealt uh dealt with uh in scripture so for example with with understanding sola fide uh, we would go to romans chapter three four and five right because that's where paul is actually explaining what this is how it works so on and so forth so this the same is true with the gift of uh, tongues um, with with tongues we do have paul saying uh in first corinthians chapter 12 we 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 have him mentioning the term uh to some is distributed you know the uh different kinds of 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 languages different species of languages and so yes we have narrative text uh in in acts chapter 2 yeah where it's human languages absolutely um and uh paul's teaching is consistent with that in first corinthians 13 he includes you know the the tongues of men, right? Acts two. You could you could presume on you know the other instances in Acts, like chapter ten, chapter nineteen. I'm I'm fine with that. Um, but he says the tongues of men and angels, right? So Paul gives uh, a, a a gift of tongues to include you know multiple kinds of tongues. So he mentions chapter thirteen, the tongues of men or angels, and then uh, contrary to what Kofi said, I believe that chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians is actually where, just like in Romans 3, 4, and 5, he actually fleshes out sola fide. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 fleshes out what this uh, just, you know, more common and ongoing gift uh, of tongues is. Now, I, I believe that, yes, it still is. It can be the tongues of men, um, but it can also be the tongues of, of angels. And Paul actually explains I believe contextually you you move through 1 Corinthians 13. He mentions the tongues of angels and then you keep flowing down into chapter 14. And he actually says some things that that seem to speak of something very different than the uh, specific phenomena that happened in Acts 2. And that's uh, where Paul says that for the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men. Okay, so this is not languages to men, speaks not to men but speaks to God. So it's, it's, it's God word focused language. Um, He says for, for no one understands him again, confirming it's not a human language. This, this angelic tongue that, that I believe he's explaining here. No one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So next time someone, uh, you know, makes fun of a charismatic, which I understand for, for, for talking, you know, blah, 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 whatever. um, I would just point you to what Paul says, uh, you know, in, in this version and this kind of, of languages, he says, you're speaking to God, he says, you're uttering mysteries in the spirit. He says, No man's supposed to understand, uh, you, you're building uh, your yourself up. Um, and he, you know, has further indications as you continue in the chapter about that. He's actually does this uh, often um, when he's not in church, there's no evidence of tongues being used to specifically evangelize the lost. So, whenever Paul says, I speak in tongues more than y'all when he says, but rather in church, I would do this. So Paul in, in his private life, he's speaking in this angelic uh, uh, language that no man understands. So so I would say on the point of tongues, what Kofi said, I would say, uh, just like we do when we understand the doctrine of sola fide, we go to where the scriptures most clearly flesh it out. So I would say that wouldn't be Acts 2, although Acts 2, uh, I can account for that on my view, but I would say where it's most fleshed out is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, specifically in chapter 14, on tongues. With the gift of prophecy, I would say uh, that Kofi is referring to, to to one text to define what prophecy is, and I agree with the text. It is it is God's word through men. Um, however, Numbers chapter 12 also makes a bit of a distinction between how God speaks to Moses versus how he speaks to other people in riddles, uh, things that are less, uh, you know, a little, little bit less uh, clear. Um, and also, as far as the discontinuity with the gift of prophecy, I mean, with, with, with the priesthood, I mean, just take that for an example. In the Old Testament, the priesthood is very limited, and, and there's many things you do physically. Like, you know, you go into the temple, you have to be from a certain tribe, you offer up a certain, you know, animal, you have to do it X, Y, and Z. Versus in the New Covenant, the priesthood is universalized, and it's, it carries much discontinuity. We're you know, we're a, we're a, we're a holy priesthood to God. We're all, we're all priests. There's a universal priesthood, but yet it's very different. We're no longer, you know, of a specific tribe. We're, we're no longer, um, you know, physically offering up animals, uh, into a physical geographical location. Um, so, I mean, just as that's different, I don't understand why if there's evidence in the new Testament text, why the democratization of the gift of prophecy, um, can be seen to carry some discontinuity with it. Again, God's bringing his essential, foundational, canonical revelation to a close with the closing of the New Testament writings, but yet the gift of prophecy is poured out on daughters, on on, on you know, male, female servants. And Paul says, which we haven't gotten to these texts, he tells us that these gifts and these phenomena would not cease un- until the eschaton. So here's the thing. Even if my definition of prophecy is wrong, in terms of discontinuity, even if I said that, I would still be a continuationist because scripture tells us when this gift would cease. Um, so that's what I would say about that. And um, I, I'm not sure I remember Kofi's other point, but I'll, I'll leave that response right there.
0: Kofi, do uh, you have a response?
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, so, first of all, uh, I should want to respond to something that I, I'm not paying too much attention to the YouTube comments, but I did look over there just in case anyone had a question. And someone noted that they felt I was contradicting myself because I used a narrative in Acts to demonstrate what the gift of tongues was. Um, to which I would respond, Acts is actually describing what happened, and it clearly defines what happened. There's not ambiguity like there is with the Acts 21 passage. We also don't see any contradiction between acts chapter 2 and first corinthians 12 13 and 14. Um, first of all the use of the language of diverse kinds of tongues or different kinds of tongues well on my view i can explain that quite easily how many languages exist on the planet earth i speak three <laughs> and that's just three that i'm aware of and of course there are countless more so to kind of say well different kinds of tongues can mean something other than human tongues not necessarily i think i can account for that just as easily as my continuationist friends would say they can account for that as for first corinthians chapter 13 um let's look at that a little closely because i think if you read first corinthians chapter 13 and I, I grew up pentecostal so i'm very familiar with the tongues of angel argument from first corinthians 13 but if you look at first corinthians chapter 13 a little closer it doesn't seem to make that point i think paul's point is being missed if you take it as a literal affirmation of a gift a tongue of angels as it were. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13 beginning in verse 1. If I So again I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. If I speak in human or angelic tongues but do not have love I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and i give and if i give over my body in order to well some translations say to be burned some translations say to boast but have not love i gain nothing when paul's using this language paul is using some hyperbole to make his point that listen i could have all kinds of supernatural abilities he doesn't just mention the gift of tongues here if you say well the gift of tongues could be angelic languages based on this text Do you also believe then that it's possible for somebody to understand all mysteries and have all knowledge? Do we also believe that somebody can have the kind of faith where they could literally uproot a mountain? Funny, I think Paul is pulling actually from Jesus at that point. When Jesus uses that language, Jesus is not literally saying that the disciples could uproot a mountain. So I don't necessarily think that you have to take angelic tongues or the tongues of angels here, as Paul is saying, that is actually possible for someone to speak the tongues of angels. I think when you come into 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I agree. It's, a, it's the application of a number of points that Paul has started making all the way back in chapter 12. And in chapter 12, one of the things he says about spiritual gifts is they are not given for personal edification. They are given for the common good. They are given for the benefit of all. But what was happening in Corinth was people were using this gift for their personal edification, not for the edification of the body as I've taught the people that our church when I've taught on spiritual gifts, I've said that, listen, God gives us his gifts for others for their good. It's never for our personal edification. We have means for our own personal edification. But when Paul's talking about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, he's talking about their use for the edifying of the body. The reason why he can tell people, listen, I'd rather you, you can speak in tongues all you want, but I'd rather you could prophesy. Why? Because everybody is benefited. I think that component gets missed in some continuationist readings because Paul's focus in 1 Corinthians 14 is on the edification of the body, not for the personal benefit of the individual. And when the individual is, quote unquote, being blessed, I don't think Paul is saying that as a commendation. I think Paul is saying that as a rebuke, that you've missed the point of what these gifts are for. These gifts are not given for your personal edification, your personal benefit which was clearly a problem in Corinth, there was lots of selfishness in that congregation. Actually, these gifts are given for the benefit of all. They're given for, and going back to chapter 12, for the common good, not the individual's good.
0: Yeah. Um, Troy, before you respond, we did get a question about, um, for you, kind of explaining um, a term you kept using, the Democratization um democratization democratization. Language is not my strong suit at all. Uh what what were you kind of meaning with that kind of within your um argument?
1: Sure, yeah, yeah. It's a good question. So uh democratization um just as it's analogous to the discontinuity of the priesthood in the old testament. Um, when it's it's very limited in other words it's not democratized it, it's not for every every believer okay it's limited okay but then in the new covenant you know we are we are all a priesthood right the uh you know we're, we're, there's a universal priesthoods in other words we're all priests uh as as we're believers in christ and in the body and and so it is analogous with what i'm arguing for the gift of prophecy i mean moses, he wished that all God's people was, you know, would prophesy. It was very limited. Moses wanted it to happen more. And so in the new covenant, um, the complete essential revelation that God wants to have it's closed, but then the gift of prophecy is, is said to be poured out on potentially all believers. So there's a democratization uh, of it, meaning it's not, it's not limited in scope. It's not, it's not just limited to the apostles, um, but it's rather to be sought. I mean, we're commanded to seek it. All believer, ordinary believers in, in Corinth. So there's a, a democratization of it in that potentially all believers, even women, children, daughters um, would prophesy. Uh,
2: can I respond to that real quickly if that's okay? I, I I told you that I didn't actually respond to that in my first response. I would say I actually affirm the democratization of both of all three offices you see in the Old Testament: the prophet, the priest, and the king. I think where Troy and I would disagree is what does that democratization, or what would I I would prefer the term, what does that expansion of those offices look like? Um, it's kind of interesting that we on this subject. I over Christmas I did a series for Advent on Christ as prophet, priest, and king, and how those Three gifts actually of Christ as the prophet, Christ as the priest, and Christ as the king have direct relevance for the people of God today. I heartily affirm that all God's people, the church corporate, functions in the prophetic office today. Because if you read what the audience in the book of Acts and what Peter affirms to be the case in Acts chapter 2, it's that they're declaring the wonderful works of God. They're declaring that this new covenant age where once there was a limit on who God ministered to. And this again, Tower of Babel language here, which you need to kind of unpack back all the way back in Genesis chapter 11. Language is used as a means of dispersing the nations. Now language is being used as a means of bringing unity through the one body of Christ. So again, there's all kinds of wonderful things happening there in Acts chapter two. But clearly when they speak, it says that they're declaring the wonderful works of God. And when Peter affirms what Joel says, which I would heartily affirm as well, that all God's people, sons and daughters, male servants and female servants, would prophesy, I heartily affirm that, in the sense that prophecy was ultimately the declaration of God's mind to the the people of God in particular, and to the world in general. And what you see is that the church is tasked with that exact same office. We are to go into all the world and to proclaim the wonderful works of God ultimately found in the person and the work of jesus christ to all the nations in that sense yes i would heartily affirm that there is a democratization with the priesthood same thing we see that there is this limited priesthood in the old testament the book of hebrews tells us that christ replaces the priesthood of the old testament and since we are united to christ in a sense the church shares in that as we declare the forgiveness of sins the opening and closing of the kingdom of god through the nations same thing with christ's kingly reign so Again, you see these kings in the Old Testament who are imperfect, and they create in us a longing for a once-for-all king, A like one of the kid, kids' books I read to my son says, a forever king. And this kingship is fulfilled in Christ. But when we get to Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 5, verse 10, it says that we're a kingdom of priests. Peter says that we're a royal priesthood. Absolutely, because we share in the authority that Christ has over all things, Ephesians 1. 15 through 23. So I have no problem in saying that there is a democratization, but where I would kind of say, okay, I don't agree is to say that we now need to start redefining terms because of this democratization rather than saying, okay, what does the expansion of these offices mean for the people of God? And I would argue that that's more of a corporate function than it is every individual Christian.
0: Troy, you have a response to that.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can respond to that, um, but I, I, I am, I haven't really got a chance to ask Kofi some really basic questions. I'd like okay. to, I'd like to, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to uh, hear in a second, but just a quick response to that um, is I would just, just uh, uh, present that, um, uh, that, that on one sense, I, I would agree with Kofi. I mean, it, like it is prophetic to the word uh, of God However, um, we um, are given evidence in the New Testament that the uh, function of prophecy is not uh, not merely, it's not reduced to proclaiming an already written text in Scripture, but it's rather, uh, uh, it's it's uttering um, information from the Spirit of God that comes spontaneously, Okay, so it's it's different than teaching. It's different than the gift of teaching or, or preaching. We see that distinguished, like in Acts thirteen, there's a difference between the teachers and the prophets. We see in uh, in, in other texts, like First Corinthians fourteen, um, where Paul's giving instructions on you know if someone has a prophecy, it, it, it's a it's of a spontaneous nature. In other words, it's it's not based on the text uh, 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 merely. In other words, it's not it's not reduced to that, um, but it's it's actually it's actually information that comes uh, uh, by revelation of God in a spontaneous uh, uh, way, and so it, it's it's that gift, of prophecy that is to continue until, until the eschaton. But but a much simpler question I was wanting to ask Kofi is it, just this, a very basic level. Um, so so I can provide you with with multiple verses that uh, indicate that the cessation of all spiritual gifts will be at the eschaton what verse can you provide uh that teaches uh what what you're defining as cessationism
2: so um you made a point earlier and i'll come back let me give you the short answer and then explain my short answer my short answer is i can't give you a single verse i can't i'm not going to um manufacture one i don't think the first corinthians 13 text is that definitive in my personal opinion I'll just put that out there. I think some cessationists make too much of that text. I think that text is a lot more difficult to try and deal with than we try to make out. That's just me. So no, I can't give you a specific text, but then I don't think that's the best way to do theology to begin with. I think what you do is you look at the totality of scripture. You look at various biblical principles. You bring those principles together and you make, you hope, fateful conclusions based on those principles. So when you say, is there a text I can go to? I can't give a specific text, but I can look at a number of texts and what they teach and come to some conclusions. So, for example, the foundational, and this hasn't really been addressed, the foundational nature of the work of the apostles. First Corinthians, second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, Hebrews chapter 2 verses 3 and 4, first Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul again uses that language of himself and says, listen as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and everyone else builds upon that foundation. There's a foundational work that was given to the apostles. Well, what did that work include? It included the signs that authenticated them in that office, which is Paul's point in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, that the signs of an apostle were wrought with much patience in signs, in wonders, and in mighty deeds. So that's one aspect of things. Second of all, I think While 1 Corinthians 13 is a very difficult text, it does seem to point to at some point that there is a, and there's a whole set of things to do with the middle voice there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is somewhat debatable, I understand, but as to whether these gifts would be brought to an end by a particular event or that they would pass out over time, that's a whole other set of issues. But in terms of the foundational ministry of the apostles, I feel that's one area. I think the very definition of these gifts themselves and the nature of them. It's interesting that tongues and prophecy are the kinds of gifts that are communication gifts that there are. As the church is forming a foundation, there is certain truth that needs to be laid out. Again, think about this. We talk about the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues comes up in the book of Acts, right at the beginning of the church in First Corinthians. First Corinthians is generally acknowledged to be one of the earlier um, epistles from Paul. So these gifts are still actively in operation. And clearly for the Corinthians, things have gotten out of hand. And Paul has to bring some regulation to the use of these gifts and say, listen, the whole use of these gifts is actually not in line with the purpose of them. And so looking at the definition of, the, of these gifts. Again, I don't think 1 Corinthians 13 is clear enough to, and in fact, I don't think it's a matter of unclarity. I don't think it's teaching at all that there's such a thing as a tongue of angels. I think 1 Corinthians 14, when it talks about um, speaking in a tongue, is talking about the same kind of tongues you see in the book of Acts. Now, as to duration, in fact, those who are cessationists, some say, okay, it's the close of the canon. There are others who say it passed away maybe with the passing of those who were close associates of the apostles again, I don't see the need to give a specific text as much as to ask the question. Here are a number of biblical principles, and the biblical principles lead us to suggest that some of these gifts are permanent and ongoing, and they're needed for the life of the church. And if I can get it on record, I think it's disappointing that we spend so much time on a handful of gifts that in the long run are not even the most important gifts, when there are so many other gifts that are permanent and ongoing and are necessary for the building of the body. But that's a conversation for another time i'm sure i would ultimately say that what we see in scripture is that these are gifts that were tied to the ministry of the apostles and those who followed them that once the apostles had laid a foundation some of these gifts were no longer necessary and that's why you see even in the new testament again you don't see In the pastoral epistles a consistent emphasis on the exercise of gifts what you see paul tell timothy and titus is listen you focus on the teaching of the word you focus on yes the ministry of the spirit as he empowers and as he strengthens you in the faithful proclamation of the gospel message so again i look at all of these things as a cessationist and i say yes there's no one particular text i will talk about 1 corinthians 1 7 very quickly i think that passage gets misread a lot What Paul is saying is, yes, you're exercising every spiritual gift as you wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say the gifts continue till the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says the Corinthians are waiting for his coming. That's very different. And so even then to try and say, all right, well, that text clearly says that they will wait, that these gifts continue to the eschaton. I don't think that's what 1 Corinthians 1.7 is saying again, with Ephesians 4, I think he's talking about a state of maturity. I don't think he's talking about perfection in Ephesians 4. And so, in a sense, yes, the church has not reached that point, but the church has reached a point in terms of the unity of the faith. We have a completed scripture. The body of doctrine that is handed down from God's people has been given to us. We have it. And so, again, these are texts I look at. I could be 100% be wrong on this issue. I have no problem in saying that. But as I read the scripture, it leads me to suggest That again, some of these gifts were foundational and some of these gifts are ongoing, and that from the church's edification today, we pursue the ongoing gifts. And again, as I said right at the beginning of our time, I think there are more gifts than even the Bible tells us. But that's again how I get there. We can talk about that later, I'm sure. But in answering your question, no, I don't have a specific verse, but I don't think I need a proof text verse as much as I need to consider the totality of scripture to come to my conclusion.
1: Oh, okay, gotcha. So, if I can ask you this, because I've I've heard you say this several times, mm-hmm. uh, th- that the purpose of the particular gifts we're dis- we're disputing we're, were were tied to the foundational, uh, you know, purpose of the apostles establishing the church, uh, things of, of that nature. So, so could you could you provide me a text that teaches that the only purpose of the gifts that we're discussing was was tied to what you're saying it was tied to the the apostles the authentication of of the gospel message
2: well i didn't say the only purpose i said that the primary purpose was the authentication of the apostles and for that again second Corinthians chapter 12 verse 12 hebrews chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 do they Did they obviously have a benefit to the people who receive those gifts? So when Peter lays hands on Dorcas, for instance, and she's healed, is Dorcas benefited by that? Of course we agree that. When, you know, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, someone speaks a word of prophecy and prophecy is given for exhortation, for edification and for comfort. Do I believe? Yeah, of course. I'm not saying that that's the only purpose. I'm saying the primary purpose is that they authenticate the ministry of the apostles, and as they authenticate the ministry of the apostles, the benefit for the people who heard was, whether it's the gift of prophecy and being exhorted, encouraged, or comforted, or the gift of healing, or the gift of tongues, they are receiving as a result of the apostles exercising their foundational ministry.
1: Okay. So so just to respond to a couple of the texts you, you keep referring to, and then and then I'd just like to ask one more question. So so St. Corinthians Uh, 1212 in the greek there the text says that paul uh you know demonstrated the signs of a of apostle the word true is actually not in the greek but it's it's rightly inferred because he's contrasting him from the false apostle but 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 whenever he says with complete patience the the esv translates that right i think in in a more right way because then the rest of the phrase is actually in the dative with signs and wonders so on and so forth. So it doesn't mean that signs and wonders were the exclusive, uh, you know, proof of a, of a true apostle. I mean, many will come to Jesus, Matthew 7, on that day and, and claim to do signs and wonders and, and, and so on. And they're, of course, not true. So, so j- like, just to point that out real quick, the second text, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, the participle there. So, number one, the word apostle is nowhere in the text. And number two, the participle there is actually in the present tense. So it's not in the past tense, as is often translated, uh, you know, these things bore witness, but it's rather these things are bearing witness. So there's, um, you know, I I, I agree with you that a purpose. okay. but I'm not even going to say a primary purpose because I don't see a text that even makes that distinction. I would just say. That a purpose of these particular gifts we're talking about uh, served, uh, you know, in a continuous way to, to bear witness of, of of the message that was being uttered, the gospel message. Um, but I would say that in in no way, in no scripture, uh, no scripture warrants us to distinguish that these that the primary purpose was authentication at all. I would just say that we have scriptures that indicate that. A purpose was to authenticate, to confirm foundational work of the apostles in Christ. But then, and and here's what I want to ask: we have other texts where Paul in First Corinthians chapter twelve, where he's not just talking to apostles; he's talking to ordinary Christians, and he's telling the ordinary Corinthians uh, what a, another purpose. If you want to, you know, word it that way, an, another purpose for these gifts, like including workings of miracles, gift of prophecy, gifts of healings, uh, gift of languages, um, and so on, were for the purpose not to authenticate the gospel message, although that is a purpose. But however, the purpose is chapter 12, verse 7. It's for the common good, chapter 14, verses 3 and elsewhere. Throughout the text, it's for the upbuilding and edification of the church. Uh, So uh, what what I would just point out is that it's very reductionistic. To, um, you know, argue, uh, I'm not saying you're necessarily arguing this, but many cessationists will, uh, will, will pick, you know, one text that, that mentions a purpose of miraculous and, and certain gifts, and they will make it the purpose. In other words, when there's multiple purposes for these gifts, they'll say, they'll, they'll kind of ignore the purpose, uh, you know, the ongoing edification purpose for the church first corinthians 12 through 14 and they'll say well now these were just to, to authenticate and therefore they build the logic of therefore once the message was laid in the first century we don't need them but but what i'm saying is this um why would you believe that these you know, gifts of miracles gifts of languages uh prophecy and others um would would cease uh you know already in the past if Paul says the purpose of them is to edify, is the ongoing edification uh, uh, ministry in the church.
2: So a number of things. First of all, you mentioned Hebrews chapter two and said the apostles are mentioned. Um, Hebrews two, three and four says, um, I have it here." How, we, how will we esca- escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Those who heard him, clearly is the apostles they were the ones who were with him from the beginning in fact acts chapter one when they want to elect a new apostle what's one of the qualifications one who was with us from the beginning so the word apostle isn't necessarily mentioned there but those who heard him i would argue is a clear reference to the apostles now coming to the question of you know ignoring the common good or the ongoing element of the gift of tongues my response as a cessationist is well paul is writing at a time where these gifts are operative so of course he's going to write in the present tense. The question is, is it Paul's understanding that they will always be operative? And I'm not convinced that that's necessarily what Paul believes. Now, I understand that in a sense, that's where this, dis- this discussion hinges. Is this an ongoing um, work of the spirit or was this a particular work of the spirit as the church was being um, founded and it's in a transitional phase from old covenant to new covenant? I understand that that's a matter of debate, but I don't think that's quite the unanswerable passage, and I'm yet to read the cessationists, and I read a lot of them, who kind of ignores that as much as they simply just don't agree with the continuationist understanding of what that means. So that would be my very simple response
1: to that. Uh, okay, gotcha. But my uh, but my question would be, um, you know, it, it, it seems arbitrary for Paul to list a set of spiritual gifts, c- command all of the Christians to— Earnestly, you know, zelute, lust, desire them. Um, you know, a couple of times, gifts including like teaching and administration. It seems arbitrary to, you know, draw a line through where Paul says that the purpose of all of them. He makes no distinction. The purpose of all of them is for the ongoing edification, building up of ordinary Christians like us today. It seems very arbitrary to draw a line and say, well, gift of teaching. Is still, you know, continuing today. But for some reason, you know, based on all of these these notions that are really coming outside of Scripture, these certain, you know, th- three three or four gifts, um, you know, are 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 going to be dismissed from this list. In other words, in other words, if Paul makes no distinction within the list and just includes all of them uh, and attaches the purpose uh, for them for the ongoing edification of the church I, I think you know it's it's a simple it's a simple understanding to say well it, it, as long as the church needs to be edified which i believe we would agree it still does then all the gifts Paul includes uh, are, are 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 you still you know still have have a purpose so so my question would be um on what basis uh in the text um can you distinguish and render that some of those gifts uh, have ceased and would no longer be needed versus other ones and say that they w- would still be needed.
2: So um, I'm going to try again. I think that where, I think we're missing each other in that the assumption is that, okay, Paul mentions all of these gifts in First Corinthians chapter 12, and he nowhere says that they come to an end, therefore they don't. Okay, my response to that would be, Okay, first of all, these particular gifts that I don't think it's arbitrary at all, actually, I would argue that as the canon of Scripture is given to us in full, we no longer need gifts that come with a revelatory function because there is no need for a new revelation. The revelation that we need for 2 Peter 1, 3, all that we need for life and godliness is given to us in the knowledge of him. Where do we have the most perfect and complete knowledge of him? I would argue it's in the pages of this book. Some may debate with me on that, and that's perfectly fine. But I think the most logical way to make a distinction is to say, okay, what gifts were necessary as scripture is being completed? Think about this. First Corinthians is written to people who prior to reading it didn't have it. Like these gifts are, these writings of the apostles are being sent out. And as they're being sent out, they are forming a base. They are forming the faith once for all given to the saints. We're moving from just the preaching and teaching of the apostles as you see in Acts chapter 2 where they devote themselves to the apostles teaching to now we have a infallible record of that I would I'm going to make a statement and I don't mean to be harsh when I say this but honestly I find the continuationist argument to be a going backwards in redemptive history not a going forwards because now we're going back to okay God is still giving information piecemeal he's still giving information at different times at different ways which actually Hebrews chapter one, which I think is probably the closest text to giving us a duration. Hebrews one says in the past, God spoke at various times and in various ways to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Well, how do we have the record of where he spoke through his son in the word? The the son turned around to the apostles for John chapter 14 through 16. And basically says, listen, you're going to go out and the spirit will bring to mind the things that I have taught you they would continue the ministry of Jesus. That's why Acts begins, Acts chapter 1. That Luke says, "Listen, I wrote you a treatise, to Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The apostles pick up that work where Jesus left off, but nowhere are we taught that that continues till the present day. At some point, we have the record of what Jesus and the apostles taught, and we have it, I would argue, in the pages of completed scripture. So I don't think it's arbitrary. I think what you're asking for is a specific text that gives you a time, and I would say don't think about time, think about purpose. And if the purpose is revelation for the upbuilding and the ongoing edification of God's people, yes, in First Corinthians, they needed the gift of prophecy and they needed direct words from God. But we have a completed scripture. We have, in the words of 2 Peter 1, a more sure word of prophecy. If we have that, why do I want to go backwards in redemptive history to still looking for new revelation?
1: Okay, gotcha. So I have, I have a really important question on that. So so first I would comment on your argument of going backwards in redemptive history. I would just say that that must be defined, in other words, how redemptive history progresses must be defined by scripture. So so if we see in the text of the New Testament that, that there's going to be an ongoing gift of prophecy, you know, until the eschaton, then, then, then we need to let that define how, how redemptive history progresses. But the second thing I would ask is that... Um, Since in the both Old and New Testament writings, um, we have many examples of prophecies, the gift of prophecies uh, working and not being recorded in the canon. My question would be this. If the Bible itself tells us that the gift of prophecy worked outside of the canon, then why would the closing of the canon uh, dismiss our ongoing need? the gift of prophecy
2: okay i'm going to ask you a question what's the purpose of the gift of prophecy
1: according to the new testament there's many get or there's many purposes uh generally for the building of the church but it has a function of exposing secret sin according to first corinthians 14 it has a purpose uh according to first timothy 118 seems like the elders prophesied to Timothy. It's nowhere in scripture, but he seems to be encouraged by that. Paul tells him to wage the good warfare and ministry by that. So encouragement ministry. Uh, it's also seen throughout the book of Acts where Paul is given specific missional direction um, within the general missional direction that he's already given. So, so direct specific direction and mission. And then in some very rare cases predictive, uh, you know, the purpose of predicting something like, like Ag- Agabus did. But I would say that those would be in the in the New Testament uh, four good examples of of the purpose of prophecy. And many of those are not recorded in the canons. So I don't understand why the closing of the canon would dismiss our need for for the gift of prophecy.
2: Well, here's why I asked that question. So if I summarize and tell me if you think my one word summary is reductionistic, and I'll drop the line of questioning. But can it is it fair to say then that from what you said that all of those purposes that you've given can be summed up in the word revelation is is that a fair uh summary of that or am i being reductionistic by just using the word revelation
1: oh no yeah i would i would say prophecy is is, is revelational
2: okay so its purpose is for revelation okay so at that point i have no issue with prophecy outside the canon as it's recorded for me in scripture no problem scripture is not completed yet there's still revelation that needs to be given my question is once we have a completed canon why do we need further ongoing revelation at some point when do we get to say and again granted we can say well it's not the same quality as canonical scripture which i still think we've not proven so forgive me if i function from the assumption here that prophecy is revelation of a kind that is equal to what we see in the pages of scripture. If we have a completed canon, if for example, we need to ordain elders, I don't pray and say, God tell me who should be an elder. I look at the qualifications of 1st Timothy 3 and Titus 1. What I do pray is Lord, help me to see rightly in line with what you've already said. Or if I need direction about a decision, I don't, first of all, my view of decision making doesn't really involve ongoing revelation because I don't think that's how the Bible teaches us old or new testament to make decisions. But be that as it may, when we need to make decisions in the church, what's the first thing we go to? We naturally all go firstly to scripture. I don't pray for ongoing revelation, especially where scripture is clear on a matter. So, again, for me, I understand the impulse that says, "Okay, yes, there are so many purposes and we need all of these purposes. And I would say, yes, we do. And that's why God gives us the prophetic word in the scriptures, which is more than sufficient for all of our needs
1: all right gotcha well i mean it's the sufficiency of scripture has to be defined by scripture itself so in other words uh the reason we take communion or gather with the saints or the reason we pray pray or, or do do any other thing else that scripture uh you know anything else how can i say it? any practice we do that's outside of sort of you know just reading our bible we do it because scripture because of the sufficiency of it so that and that that would just apply to pursuing the gift of a, a prophecy uh, but but again to, to answer your question if those revelational words if those prophecies that we are told in the new testament like to timothy or like uh philip's four daughters or or you know in other cases if those revelations were edifying but they never were in in the canonical revelation uh then then of course like there uh, is 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 it's no reason to believe that the closing of the canon w- would render those, uh, uh, you know, the gift of revelation and prophecy useless because like, and I and I understand you, you make the point, you know, the gift of prophecy was was functioning on, on your view, but it, it was needed because the canon was complete. But what I'm saying is, is that the completion of the canon would in no way uh, dismiss the need for the ongoing gift of prophecy, because uh, the prophecies were told of that happened in that first century time, many of those were edifying, but they never made it into the canon. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm not seeing uh, how... Again, I, I don't disagree
2: that they were edifying. I don't disagree that they happened. But again, the reason why I don't feel like that's an argument that shuts down cessationism is a simple fact, Paul and the Paul, Luke those who mention spiritual gifts are writing at a time where those gifts are operative. Of course, they're going to describe, for example, Philip's daughter's prophesying. Of course, Paul is going to mention prophecy happening in the Corinthian uh, congregation. That's still happening. What my question is, again, you look at the flow of redemptive history, even in Paul's later letters, you see less and less of an emphasis on this. Why? Because I would argue they're already starting to kind of fade into the limelight as we move from the transitional early church to the more permanent form of the church as we're nearing the end of biblical revelation that's why even jude can say at the end of towards the end of the new testament he can say listen you need to contend for the faith that has once for all been given to the saints already there is a deposit of apostolic doctrine that the church is able to go back to trying to put yourself in the book of acts and say well they needed it so why don't we i'm sorry redemptive history i'm going to say bluntly has moved on and if we ignore the fact that redemptive history has moved on, it opens the door to all kinds of problems. Why can't I turn around and say scripture is insufficient there? If it's still ongoing stuff that scripture doesn't address, well, can I throw out the sufficiency of scripture in that case?
1: Um, well, no, I mean, I would just go back to uh, a biblical definition of sufficiency. I mean, it's it's sufficient to tell us all the theology we need to know all the moral standards we need to know how to be saved so on and so forth but scripture and this is going to sound weird but scripture in a certain sense it's insufficient to get us deli meat at the grocery store like we well like we have to do things outside of reading our bibles like scripture is insufficient to you know give us the lord's supper i mean those are practices that we do because scripture tells us to do them. but yet the practices are not the same thing as simply reading the pages of of our Bibles. So I would again say that just like we, we are to pursue gather the Lord's table, gather on the Lord's day um, uh, you know, pray have godly counsel from pastors and, and other things I would say. So it is that because the scripture is sufficient, it tells us to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. It never tells us to not that, that we, should do that, and, and and I'm still not understanding about how if the prophecies that were non-canonical were to edify Christians, and and uh, you know those those words were never included in the canon. I'm I'm not seeing how the completion of the canon, uh, you know, c- competes with the ongoing uh, need of that.
2: Okay, let me ask a question.
0: Um. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I, I'm going to step in real quick. Um, Kofi, I'll let you respond. We're hitting mm-hmm. about a, an hour and forty minutes. Okay. So once you respond, um, we will kind of close it out. See, I wanted to give you guys that a good time to talk about okay. this. Sure. Um, so for our listeners, we'll have um a little bit more, and then I'll close it out.
2: Okay. Um, I'll try one more time. I have no, first of all, actually, before I even address that, what I was going to say. Yes, I don't believe scripture is sufficient for everything. I think that's kind of a straw, man. I'm not saying you're doing it, but I do hear this from the um, continuation inside a bunch. Well, you believe that you can use the Bible for just about everything. No, there's lots of things the Bible doesn't address. No problem. So use the example of going to get deli meat at the store. Yeah, Bible doesn't tell me, should I go for Black Forest ham or should I get honey glaze? It doesn't tell me that. I wish it would. It would make my shopping trip so much easier, but it doesn't. Like, there's lots of things the Bible doesn't specifically address, but the matters concerning God's will for us, again, 2 Peter 1-3, everything that's needed for life in life in Christ and for ongoing godliness is given to us in Scripture. I do not need continuing revelation for the stuff that Scripture is very clear on. So, yes, the Bible doesn't tell me how when to take the Lord's table. So, for example, our church here in um, Southern Oregon, we just moved at the beginning of the year to observing the lord's table weekly there is nowhere in the bible that says you have to do it weekly we used to do it monthly that was a matter of okay we're comparing again biblical principles we're allowing a number of texts the nature of the lord's table what we believe it is um looking at all of these things pulling them all together and saying okay what does the bible lead us to in relation to making the decision about how frequently we're going to have the lord's table So I agree that there are things the Bible doesn't explicitly address. The question is, I guess, I know we're running out of time, so I can't ask any more questions. But the question I'd like to leave to our listening audiences, where, and this is a question I've never got an answer to, and like I said, I grew up Pentecostal, and I began to re-ask some questions in my late teens that led me out of that. And one of them was, what possible situation could there be that the Word of God, which we say is sufficient for life and godliness. Let's just say we limit it to that. What possible situation could arise where there is not either a direct command or a biblical principle that we can apply? If you can find one, let me know. But yes, the Bible isn't going to tell me specifically what to do, but it can give me principles. And there is a degree to which God, as He has given us the Holy Spirit, and he has given us wisdom the 1689 london baptist confession talks about there's some things we do based on the light of nature and christian prudence like there's some things where we have to say you know what we don't have a clear scripture but the answer is not i need a revelation to help me figure that out i would say the answer is okay well for everything we've gone to god's word after that we now need to ask you what's the wisest what's the most prudent what have god's people done through the ages All of these things factor into our making decisions as God's people. I don't see in the Bible where we're told in a continual sense that when we need to make decisions or we need um, decisions on matters of practice that the Bible doesn't explicitly address, that we're to seek ongoing revelation.
0: Okay. With that, um, I want to thank our guests, um, Kofi and Troy, for bearing with all the technical difficulties and then spending an hour and 45 minutes not this point um, discussing this issue as you can tell um there is passionate here but it also can be a civil conversation as we saw today and there's a lot of things to think about and to consider as we dive into God's word and hopefully that is one thing you saw even in our discussion so i once again want to thank our guests for joining us and hopefully next week we will not have technical difficulties and <laughs> we'll have a new episode of g220 radio hopefully both on facebook and youtube and everything works properly for ricky um, who's not able to i'm mike miller thank you for listening to g220 and god bless